0: Hello everyone and welcome to the next episode of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week we are going to be chatting to Veronica, or MentaVet, about her struggles within the profession and the ways that she's found to overcome some of those challenges. We're also really excited to be joined by Louise from Zoetis, And this week, as part of our Dermatology Takeover, we're going to be chatting things parasitic and beyond. So just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I am a recognised specialist in small animal internal medicine and one of the founders of VTX. I just want to start by saying a special thank you uh, to Zoetis for their support of this podcast and our Dermatology Takeover. Right, Veronica, thank you so much for joining us. Um, We've been speaking for a while about this and then... um, here we are. So I'm excited that you're here and we're chatting. Um and it's also one of those funny things where we've kind of connected for a while over um our social media platforms. And and I suppose you kind of feel like you kind of get to know someone through this funny virtual uh platform. But it's nice to finally see you. So um I don't know if you want to start just by telling uh the folk at home um just a little bit about you to start. Is that okay?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm, I'm a first opinion uh, small animal vet. Um, I worked overseas for five years, actually straight after graduating. So that was um, an interesting time. But I worked both in a veterinary capacity and uh, with equine, actually. And I taught a bit at a university in Africa um, and I started a conservation master's with Edinburgh. Um, But I'm also a mum and I'm a mental first aider, and I really care about wellness, about um, self awareness, self care, and just kind of getting the most out of life, both professionally and personally. Wow, very busy. Yeah.
0: yes and that was a very nice summary I wish I could I wish I could be as succinct as that when I um when I speak just waffle on
1: I actually have a real tendency to waffle brilliant like so genuinely you so just... clearly
0: practiced that yeah so um yeah so I think there was a couple of things well there's a there's lots of things there but I think what I love is that part of your introduction you're you say but I'm you know I'm a mum um and it, in itself that as many of us know is the hardest job in the whole world. And trying to then combine that with veterinary medicine is also really quite a, a challenge. Have you struggled? with that balance <laughs> you must have done please say you have
1: yeah. I mean massively <laughs> okay. absolutely massive I still struggle with it I don't think there'll be a day when I don't um and I if someone doesn't I'd love to hear their secret because yeah <laughs> um,
0: they must tell us they must tell us yeah I mean
1: I think for me the one thing that I feel just makes you um a raging feminist is becoming a parent um and not only a feminist, I suppose, but just the inequality that parents face, I think, in the workplace, particularly in our workplace, only really hits you when you're in the thick of it, doesn't mm-hmm.
0: it? <laughs> I, I often find myself saying, oh, it's really hard with the boys, blah, blah, blah. And then always sort of coming back and saying, but yes, I know it's my choice. We chose to go down this road. So I can't really complain because I made this decision. Uh, is, do you think that's true then? Or do you think we've got a right to kind of complain?
1: It's a. I think what you said is really important because um, I, when I was really struggling a few years ago, um, which coincided with a really awful job, but actually I was struggling um, as a parent and as a vet at the same time. And I went to a. I joined a motherhood well-being course, like a group uh, mental health course locally to me, um, which was recommended by a um, health visitor. And one of the things that the actually the therapist said was, well you know, you chose this, you chose being a parent. So, um, you know, you need to kind of take some responsibility. And it really hurt my feelings at the time. I got really upset. (laughs) She actually apologized later, which I think brought us closer, but I do feel that. And I think, um, but I also feel, and it's a bit like mental health. I feel like unless you're a parent, you cannot possibly imagine what it's like to be one. And I don't mean to say that to, um, you know, kind of uh, get the violin out and say, gosh, being a parent is so awful because it is such a joy. Uh, But at the same time, there is nothing that compares to it. And it is a full time job and a full time job and a full time job. It's exhausting, isn't it? And I think I don't think anyone who's not a parent can really ever fully understand. And it's the same with mental health. I think it's so important to get people who are mentally well to get on board and to support each other but until you've really been there at the depths of um, some of these really difficult situations I don't think you'll always get that understanding from people who perhaps haven't been there mm-hmm. and that's why I think this awareness is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. I think the other thing is though uh, you know yeah as you said being a parent is really a difficult I also think, though, and this is not maybe just veterinary medicine, but it's for me, one of the the toughest things is the guilt when actually you become so consumed with your job. And then at the end of a day, a, a long day, you know, you just want to sit in a dark room and rock quietly to yourself and um but you can't do that because the kids are banging on the door and then you feel really guilty because you're not able to you're not mentally in the moment I've one of the things I have to really work on is is that being there in the moment and not just being constantly distracted by the 20 million other things that are going on in my mind um, and that's something that I've really struggled with and gives me a lot of yeah, guilt, I suppose, mm. I don't know if that's the right, it is the right word, I do feel very guilty. Um, and, and trying to find that balance, I think is really hard. Absolutely,
1: yeah. And I I find myself, and my husband and I are reading this amazing book. I think we spoke about it, <laughs> the mm. book you wish your parents had had. Um, but ultimately, I think it is hard. And I think you realize, not only as a parent, but anyone who has more than one project on it at any one time, there has to be some give and take. And I think all vets are such overachievers. We want to do the absolute best in everything that we try. And parenting is no different. We want to feel like we are achieving something. We want to feel like we're winning. And actually, you can't win at parenting, can you? Um, The rules keep changing. As soon as you've mastered one stage, suddenly there's another challenge and you're not equipped to deal with it. And I think it's a real, for me, parenting has been a real eye-opener for tackling my perfectionism because I can't be everything to everyone all the time I can't I can't be the absolute best vet on the planet and the absolute best parent on the planet something's got to give and I think it's taught me that actually good enough is good enough and I need to set time aside to do the things that are important to me and I have to learn to say no to stuff that I just can't do because it it impacts on me doing the things that are important to me and to the people around me. And those boundaries are so important and they're so hard to set because we all grow up desperately wanting people to like us, don't we? We want to be that person who doesn't let people down, who's Mm -hmm. always there for everyone else. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: um, we can't do everything. And it's a really difficult, you know, it's a bitter pill to swallow. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, But I think that is at the crux of wellness. I think if we can't care enough about our own well-being to be a bit tough sometimes with people who might overstep the mark and push our boundaries, then I don't think we'll ever become happy. We'll never feel contented ultimately.
0: And do you think you've mastered it?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I've learned a lot along the way, for sure. And I feel like I'm learning every day. Um, I think my relationship with my daughter has really benefited. I still have days where I want to sit and cry and I eat my body weight in chocolate. um, And I think that's just part of the process, right? But... um, I feel like more and more I have the tools to recognize when I'm struggling, to know how to um, pull myself back from the brink so much earlier than before. And I mean, my mental health first aider training has also kind of taught me to recognize these signs in others, in my loved ones and in my colleagues. So I I feel just generally more equipped to deal with it. Um, I also know that I can ask for help. Like I am no stranger to calling vet life and chatting to them. I am no stranger to um, NHS uh, counselling either, both of which are fantastic. And I think it's all about kind of not being afraid to be vulnerable and to be fragile and to be human and to be guilty and frustrated and frazzled and kind of not hating yourself at the end of Mm. the day.
0: How have you got to a point where you are starting to be a voice for a lot of this stuff and, and want to speak about a lot of this stuff? What What's taken you on the journey? What How have you got to this point where we're, we're here talking about these things?
1: Yeah it's a really good question. I think in many ways where we all end up when we look back in hindsight it's always like gosh you, you just couldn't have planned it could you? It's just it just somehow works itself out um and I think um, the COVID pandemic has definitely precipitated a lot of this for me um I actually start my mental health journey um, started when I was working in a really unsupportive job as a new mum I'd gone from equine overseas to small animal in the UK and I was utterly out of my depth Um, I was working so full-time so I was barely seeing my family um, and I was in hindsight utterly burnt out and probably depressed so you know burnout isn't really a mental health diagnosis but I think I was both and I was just desperately trying to keep it all together and then I got through that uh, and it was difficult uh, and then I changed jobs because that was much healthier Um, and then the pandemic hit and I just suddenly started recognizing that everyone around me had so much going on. Everyone, you know, my small team in a small and very, you know, very small First opinion, um, small animal practice. I just became aware that people desperately needed guidance in these areas. And while I was nowhere near an expert, I don't have any qualifications in this stuff yet. Um, But I just felt like my own journey through quite a few common issues like anxiety and depression um, and, you know, a degree of postnatal depression as well had kind of made me the person to come to at work. And I and I really found it valuable. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'm not qualified, but I feel like I've got something to give. And I feel like a lot of this information is out there if you just know where to look and so many of us don't know where to look and I just wanted to create a resource um, that allowed people to feel like this stuff was being talked about specifically in our profession like this is a valid thing to discuss. This isn't weak. This isn't, um, you know, weird. This isn't something that, you know, special people have. Everyone is affected by this to some degree. You know, everyone is affected by bereavement and, you know, worries and all of this matters. It's not insignificant. And no, if you are strong, you're not immune to any of this. And I just wanted to just do something. And I decided that I wasn't going to wait. I just thought, let's do it. And it kind of it was just an organic process. I I sort of just thought, what has helped me, and just kind of you know got a Canva account and just started banging out some posts. Um, and it's it's been great. Like the feedback has been great because you want to feel like you're helping people. It takes a lot of time to create this content, and you want to feel like it's it's worthwhile that it's helping people, that it's it's creating something that actually is making people's lives better. Um, Oh, that, that's ultim- ultimately why I'm doing this because I care. I'm
0: sorry, I, I feel we just have to go back. Ultimately, I'm doing this because I care, mm. and that's that's really, I suppose, what it's all about. And I think that's just that's perfect in itself, you know, because I care, you know, and it it's affected me, but it affects so many other people. And and as you'll know from listening to the podcast, we've you know we just time after time, story after story of people that are just struggling. I've not spoken to a single person on this podcast that has not had some story to tell about their, their struggles within and without the, the, you know, the profession, the profession never helps our problems, (laughs) it seems to only ever make them worse. So I think that's a common theme. And that's a wider discussion, maybe for a, a whole other episode. Um. So, yeah, we're talking about meant of it. And and what I'm always blown away with by your content is that it's um, visually nice. (laughs) So well done. It looks (laughs) great. (laughs) But that's but I mean, people like things that look nice. So that is that's got to be part of it, though. I think you content's got to be visually, you know, pleasing and catching because otherwise people wouldn't look so that that's not superficial. That's actually genuinely an important part of all of this kind of stuff. Um. Your content is really varied though I don't know do you have a kind of common goal or is it is it just sort of lots of things that have kind of helped you and and, and speak to you so you've included them in that in that content?
1: Yeah it's kind. I think uh, there are four kind of broad categories which I try and um, I've got kind of a colour coding system uh, but The mental health side is um, definitely a big one for me, but I also, I appreciate it's also quite a heavy topic. Um, I know even when I was doing my mental health first aid training, it's emotionally quite draining. Um but super important. So I also wanted to actually, mental health is affected not only by these intrinsic factors of, you know, are you a perfectionist? How do you talk to yourself? Um, You know, are you, do you have imposter syndrome? Do you um, really struggle with self, self self-esteem, but also all these extrinsic things that we often um, forget, you know, actually how supportive is your workplace? Do you have any, um, Other issues that are going on? Are you thinking about changing your job? All of this stuff kind of plays in. And clinical stuff, as you said, you know, it's not only about how you're feeling. We all know that that case that knocks our confidence can have a massive impact on how we feel about ourselves and about our capabilities. So I kind of wanted something that had a clinical focus, had um, a communicational focus. I mean, I don't know about you but communication for me was the one thing that I felt utterly unprepared for after leaving uni. It's just something you learn kind of on the job and you sort of have to but at the same time there's a lot of tricks and tips that I feel should be shared more readily um, and actually once you get that stuff across you're like oh and it clicks and you feel much more able to discuss really difficult topics with some really difficult people, fairly successfully. Um, You know, we're talking brachycephalics, we're talking raw feeding, um, anti-vax, all this kind of stuff that is actually really tricky to get right. Um, So broadly, it's a combination of some fairly basic at the moment clinical content, um, more for new grads and students, but also for vets like me who perhaps had to go into a sector of the profession a bit later on and feel a little bit. You know out of date um the mental health side also communication and finally kind of career progression and um self-development I guess so those are the four broad areas um but it is I think you're right it's a bit of me kind of brain dumping stuff that I think is important is. and sometimes I'll see some yeah and I'll see something that I'll be like god that is so profound mm-hmm. And I just feel like I have to, I have to share it.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, there, but there you go. So I can guarantee if it's an issue or a, a problem that you have experienced, you can guarantee that will be someone else that has had that exact same thing. You said something there. We, we've covered a lot of those things um, in the podcast previously. We've obviously spoken a lot about imposter syndrome and various things. One thing that you said that I think I've never heard mentioned was how do you talk to yourself now I talk to (laughs) I talk to myself but usually just when I'm kind of rehearsing things that I'm going to say or I suppose when I think how do you talk to yourself I mean sometimes my kids are like what are you talking you know I'll literally be talking to myself um but I presume you mean something else, like inwardly. How do you talk to yourself? What do you mean by that? And how should we be talking? How should we be talking to yourself? <laughs>
1: well, I normally do it to a mirror. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, talking to yourself. What I mean by that is, um, what is our internal monologue telling us? And um, actually, when I was undergoing a bit of therapy mm. uh, last year, I said to my counsellor. I don't think I talk to myself (laughs) in that my brain. So we all have um, a way that we think and a way that we um, rationalize things that happen to us in life. So I guess what I mean is um, how do we interpret what goes on, how other people interact with us and how events affect us? internally so um you know someone who is a perfectionist might find that a perfectly well done bitch spay that took over an hour is a failure right and they will speak to themselves and it may not be a conscious you know it's not a conscious thing necessarily it's not that you're sat there thinking you know i'm a terrible vet but your mood will drop and you that that event will have um a a profound effect on you for hours days possibly weeks maybe even years, you know, that com- that complicated case that um, where the animal ended up dying, That many of us might still be affected by that years down the line. And I guess the question is, why? Have we not been able to rationalise why that happens? You know, are we so... I think many of us focus on intrinsic failure much more than we focus on extrinsic failure. So something that we... Somewhere something's gone wrong and we all and it's the same with parenting, we automatically think, well, that tantrum happened because I'm a terrible parent and um, I wasn't able to handle my child's emotions because I'm I'm just not cut out for this. I'm too impatient. I'm too um, young and inexperienced, whatever it is. Um, And actually, a lot of the factors that lead to these events are extrinsic you know, the child is tired or hungry, um, or, you know, that animal was really critically unwell. And actually, the, the prognosis would have been terrible anyway, in spite of everything we've done. And I think it's all about that, you know, how often do we cut ourselves in slack and use evidence to to make us believe that we are not always at fault. And look, where we are at fault, and we've made a mistake, of course, we have to problem solve that and find solutions. And Move forward, but I think so many of us don't talk to ourselves like we would a best friend. We don't, we don't, you know, we're not kind to ourselves in the Mm -hmm. way that we should Mm -hmm. be. And all that leads to is this um, crippling anxiety, lack of self worth. um, Mm -hmm. And I think there are so many amazing people in our profession that are so skilled and just give so much of themselves. It really breaks my heart that so many of us can't see those qualities in ourselves.
0: Mm, that's true I I love you know that speaking to yourself like you would your your friend and I think that's true you know I had a a very similar conversation with Steph Steph Sorrell we both had a couple of things actually over the last few weeks where we both I think really doubted ourselves and come to the other for reassurance and 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 she was saying but what what would you say to me if I was the one saying this to you and it wouldn't be the same thing you're saying to yourself so why are you saying it (laughs) <laughs> why are you doing it
1: You know what I mean like so just
0: think let's reverse the roles yeah you'd be saying to me oh no yeah. this is blah, blah blah." you know you would be counseling me in the way that I'm counseling you so why the hell are you not doing that to yourself Oh, because well and you're like no but nothing but there's nothing you're talking rubbish so so I, I like that I, I think and again just having that moment to think about well what would I say to my best friend in that situation and it probably is the exact opposite of what you're um saying to saying to yeah, yourself absolutely what do you think is the biggest you've only you've only to choose one what do you think is the biggest problem within the veterinary <laughs> profession that leads to some of the problems that we've been talking about oh that's a tricky one one <laughs> <laughs> let's start so let's start with your favorite
1: <laughs> um,
0: we can work down a list gosh.
1: I mean, for me, I think it's uh, this this mentality of if you're a good vet, you don't ask for help. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, this mentality of actually, if you're any good, you just know the answer. You can just do it. Because no one is born an expert. No one leaves uni an expert. And I think no one talks about that. And there's also this damaging mentality from, and I, I don't mean to point fingers at all, but I think some older vets who have um, lived through and worked through a time when there were no out of hours facilities, when everyone had to do their own out of hours and actually there wasn't much support and there wasn't much CPD and you just kind of had to. And, look, and I don't envy them. It must have been really tough. And the work-life balance clearly was um, awful you know, but at the same time, I just don't think that that means that we have to force the newer generations to go through the same. I really think that we all have a role to play in making things better and in leveling that playing field and in embracing change for the better. And I just don't think that resentment has a purpose, you know, actually, well, I had to deal with all this, um, you know, this, I hate the term snowflake I just honestly I hate it with such a passion because that's what people say you know people say if someone's struggling or someone's you know unhappy in a role um that they're a snowflake and they're weak and I just think that is so damaging because times have changed and um I love James Herriot it's it's just I'm I i can not wait for my daughter to be old enough for me to read all these books to her um but let's be honest here you know the world in which we live in and practice in now is, could be a different planet from that time, right? So we have to roll with the times. We have to, just because people are more, I I honestly think the answer is that people are more open about these problems and that is such a gift. It is so wonderful that um, I'm able to produce this content and get so much support for producing it rather than derision or, and I was worried. I was worried when I set it up thinking, gosh, is this a bit too snowflakey? But I think it's so important.
0: Yeah, I think the snowflake thing, that's, do you know, but I think that's officially what they're calling that generation. Isn't that even more damaging? Like, I think that's powerful because I can tell you 100% snowflake, that word, that term, I'm afraid I've heard that quite a bit over the last couple of years. Now, particularly... In referral practice, where we take on a lot of interns who are more, much more aware of the fact that they need to be looking after um, themselves and their uh, working environment and the, the, the amount of hours they're working. And so many conversations with much more senior clinicians where they are scathing of these individuals because they are even looking at their contracts because just because in our day and it's true I don't remember ever having a contract as an intern or a resident or whatever like I'd be like oh I don't know what that is I just do I'm told to do but that doesn't mean that's right and it doesn't mean that our interns now should be treated in that same way yes they should have working patterns that are reasonable yes they shouldn't be working all the hours that God sent and it doesn't mean that they're snowflakes it actually means that they're very sensible human beings who are trying to look after themselves. And there should be no shame in that. But sadly there is, there is still shame put upon individuals because of that. And the other thing is this horrific badge of honor that we have for how many hours we've worked without a break and how many nights we did in a row without a break and how we, and so we need to stop that. None of that's okay. So if you didn't get a break, we need to be saying, "Well, actually, that's not reasonable. Why did I not get a break?" And um, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep going. But and and then, but then I I think as I progressed in my career, I kind of talked myself into the fact, right? It, well, you're a specialist now, and you're getting paid this amount of money. So that means actually, if you don't get a break, you have no right to complain about it because look what you're getting paid, paid compared to someone else. And that's what's going on in my mind though. How dare I? complain about working this in many hours blah, blah 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 when I don't have a right to do that so it's there that's both ends of the spectrum so we've got interns who don't have a right to say that they deserve a break and then and I'm not saying that I'm at the I've made that sound really obnoxious saying that I'm at the other end of the spectrum but you know what I mean where I'm at the other end of the the spectrum and and I'm still saying I don't deserve a break you know so then when do we get a break
1: yeah <laughs> no exactly <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Sorry to,
0: sorry to Ram, but that is really true. Yeah, it's
1: that martyrdom, that feeling that we have to be above and beyond what we are. And we just give too much of ourselves. There's nothing left. And then, you know, you know, that thing when, when I was growing up and I, you know, when you go on a plane and you've got the insert and it says, you know, put your own oxygen mask on before you help others or children. And as a kid, I used to think that's insane. Why don't they like children? Don't they want them to survive? You know, that was genuinely my logic. And of course, recently, it makes perfect sense. How can you help someone else if you are at your end? And that's what we do. You know, we, we treat animals. And I think a, a huge part of our job is psychologically treating the owners. You know, we, we support them through some really difficult decisions mm-hmm. at some really difficult times. And mm-hmm. I would say that's at least a 40% chunk of our job, if not more. And then we've got our families and our co-workers and everyone else in our lives who we have to in some way support and love and care for. And we can't do that if we have martyred ourselves to the cause and martyred ourselves to, you know, the PTA and every other aspect of our lives. It's just not possible. But as you say, it's so ingrained and that guilt is there. You know, when I feel I have to leave, I only have a uh, half an hour gap after finishing work between between picking up my daughter and finishing my admin. I feel terrible being like, right, I'm really sorry, guys. I have to go. And there's an emergency coming down, but I have to go because if I'm not there, the nursery is shut and no one picks up my child. And I get that too and I feel guilty, but I think we need to all we have to expect management to be better for sure and i'm i'm hoping that the work that's going on out there by so many other great people is going to be pushing for that too but we individually have to push for something better for ourselves and for our colleagues mm. as well
0: yeah i saw i saw an amazing quote on on instagram this week and actually i'm i'm really annoyed that i can't now find it because i think it was just on a story or something it's now disappeared but it was i think a past bva president and he had said something really along the lines of we, we're spending all this time looking at, you know, working patterns and and rotas and blah, 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 blah. Actually, let's spend more time working on um, making sure that we get breaks, making sure that we are finishing on time. Like that has to be the priority. It doesn't, let's not tweak the rota anymore. Let's leave it because it's the same thing. We're just moving it around. We just need to make sure that people get a lunch break, at a lunch break. They get a, um, and they get away on time and to be quite honest with you when I first graduated I worked for the PDSA and probably the busiest place I've ever worked as far as you would sometimes see over 50 consults in a day right as a single vet you know if you were working on consults but I tell you what we always got our break in the morning we always got our lunch break we always got a break in the afternoon and we always got away on time now there's all, that's complex, and I clearly I know there's lots of reasons for that. But that was a priority of the PDSA to make sure that structure was there, and it worked. And so there's no reason that we cannot achieve that elsewhere. There you go. Oh God, I'm getting a bit soapboxy today, Karen. I need to be talked down off a ledge. What's happening, Veronica? You're bringing out all this like madness. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> in a good way this is all you've raised so many good points and I I, so I'm just I'm just capitalizing on them because I think what you've got to say is so valuable um what what journey are you on then what are you what are your kind of goals for the next year what are you trying to achieve
1: yeah it's a great question um I mean I'm still working on my um clinical work as well so clinical which is partly why I think hopefully I'm quite well-placed to do what I'm trying to do. Um, I really love working in practice. And as you say, it's peppered with so many frustrations and limitations, but I love it. It's, I feel like I'm in my element and I'm not the most experienced vet. Actually, I'm the least experienced vet in my practice clinically. Um, But I love it and I feel like I'm good at it. Uh, But with MentorVet, what I really want, um, there is some hopefully some exciting news in the pipeline, but I'm going to be coy and not say anything.
0: Um, Oh, no, no, we want an exclusive on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) We're not going to get it.
1: You you will get an exclusive, but just not quite yet. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I um, but something I really want is to try and um, help ordinary vets in practice um, who I, hugely admire, Um, and these might be parents, these might be new grads, these might be um, consulting only vets, these might be um, vets who feel stagnant in practice because they don't have the surgical um, options that they'd like. Just everyone, everyone in this profession who's so diverse, I just want to basically give them the skills to work out what they want for themselves and get it. And I'm not exactly sure how to do that. I have some ideas which I'm working on at the moment. And I'm really hoping... I mean, look, if you follow my page, Mentivet on Instagram, um, there will be updates soon. And there will be, hopefully, some really tangible benefits, um, hopefully, to a lot of people. Um, but ultimately, I just want to make that little difference. Um, and I really care about it. And I really want to... And I want to collaborate with people who have a you know a shared vision. This isn't about me. This is definitely about making a change and making it stick, I just want people to be happy in this profession because I love it. And I think if it's done right, it is a vocation. It is a dream job. And it really saddens me when people say that, you know, they hate life and practice, but I totally get it. Life and practice can be awful. And I've been there and it sucked. And I was thinking about leaving the profession forever. Um, But this current job I'm in saved me and I can see what it can be. And I just want that for everyone. Uh, And I don't think it's a pipe dream. I don't think it's unreasonable to have a work-life balance and to enjoy your life at home and to enjoy clinical work and to do all of it and be good enough. I genuinely believe it's possible.
0: Well, I mean, I believe you and I feel I believe you. (laughs) You speak honestly. You speak so well about it. I, I really yeah. and I genuinely believe you. And you, you really, I can see that you truly mean that. And it's, it's, it's that's really powerful in itself. I would love to know who inspires you.
1: Yeah, I know that you ask this of everyone who comes on the show, and I, <laughs> I'm afraid my answer is a bit boring. But actually, I think it for me, every, I don't think there's a single person in practice that I've met or worked with, or in somehow you know been connected to that hasn't inspired me I think the people in our profession are just amazing you know whether it's you know sometimes I listen to my boss on the phone and I'm just like god he's so good with words Do you know what I mean like or one of the nurses is just <laughs> so compassionate with this sick animal and just these little things and I think I think wellness is all about little things we all get a bit bogged down in the big picture and sometimes if you just let yourself be inspired by some of the tiny things that actually make a difference, there's just so much good in this world. And all we get told about is all this negative stuff. And I, I just love, I just, yeah, I get inspired by people I work with, by people I see, sometimes by clients who are just so unbelievably dedicated. Sometimes I'm inspired by clients that are a real pain in the butt. Um, but actually make me have to bring out the big guns to sometimes put them in their place. And sometimes we have the most amazing relationship thereafter, you know, like there's just ordinary people doing amazing things every day in veterinary and they don't get the recognition they deserve. I don't think.
0: Mm-hmm. No, definitely not. 100% not. I think that's absolutely true. So then tell us about, tell us about a little thing that we can all do today that might just make a big bit of difference
1: yeah okay well this is what i started about a year and a half ago and i do it every day and it's awesome get a notebook um and i i know in my posts i say get a bit scrap of paper but actually a notebook is better because then you've got it and you can always look back on it when you're having a really really crap day but um every day without fail whether it's a saturday or a work day it doesn't matter or a holiday. Write down three things that went well, and I do it every day. And some days it's I fed the pets. Not that I don't feed them.
0: Oh <laughs> um, God! But, that's an exclusive.
1: <laughs> but, you know the you know those days where it's just tricky to get out of bed, and it's miserable, and it's cold, and you just don't want to do anything.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But you get up and you look after your family, you look after your pets, you water the plants, and you feel like you're spent. That's still an achievement. That takes effort. And other days, you might say, you know, God, I've just learned to do the most amazing surgery, and you know, or whatever it is. It might be a massive goalpost. It might be the tiniest thing. But actually, it all counts. And if, as, as soon as you start seeing, and as soon as you start thinking that everything you do is worthwhile, it starts to feel worthwhile, and you mm. start to feel like you're a bit more in control.
0: And I, I think that's actually, so my mum had to help us uh, with childcare recently for the first time kind of staying, she had to, st- st- we had to sort of bubble and she had to stay um, because of our work commitments and things. And she said to me after a couple of days, she said, God, it's quite a lot, isn't it, all of this? And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you know, you get up and you have to, um you know, you have to feed the cat and then you have to let the dogs out and feed them. And then you have to remember to turn the light on in the fish tank and feed them. And then obviously you've got to feed the kids. And it, and so by the time you've done all of that, it's, it's quite, that's quite a lot. And I was thinking, yes, mum. And then I have to go to work. <laughs> and then, so yes, just feeding, getting, right, that's really true. So, so just getting round to the feeding of children and animals I'm already exhausted. So I absolutely think I'm going to write that down. No. I fed the fish. I can't I can't tell you how true that yeah. is. That's
1: But that's that really helps though. You know, it helps because then when you haven't written, you know, a oh God, webinar yeah. or mastered yeah. some new surgery that day, you're like, Do "You know what? It's still been a good day." Like Yeah. It's still been okay.
0: And that's the thing though because actually my benchmark is funnily enough if i've not done that webinar that's due on monday then actually it's a complete failure i've still fed the fish do you know what i mean so <laughs> and i know it's so funny because we record mostly on mondays and karen we all we always the oh god we always start by saying oh so we're doing recordings today. what are you doing and karen always says then i'm going to the shop and <laughs> i Every single month, he was out there. Weekly shop, but the, Karen, that's a massive achievement. Well done, <laughs> you for doing the shopping. I agree. Well, listen, I, I <laughs> as I knew it would be, it was an absolute joy for us to chat because what you're putting out in the world is just so important and positive, and so we thank you very much for that. And I, I really um, wish you all the kind of continued success with what you're doing, and I'm excited to um, hear about your exciting things we'll look forward to hearing about that Um, but no thank you it was really it was great to chat today
1: oh likewise thanks for having me
0: Um, now we move on to our clinical segment with louise from zoetis um which i'm really excited about we just need to say at this stage that this part of the podcast is a bit of a mix of our clinical and non-clinical chat and is definitely intended for members of the veterinary profession so by continuing to listen to this bit you are verifying that that describes you okay so um hi louise thanks so much for joining us today and um, we're very excited to have you on hi, yeah. i was reading a little bit of your background um and you've done some quite interesting um things so i just think it'd be nice just if you started by um introducing yourself to our listeners um, and just a little bit about your background
2: yeah thank you um so i qualified from bristol in 2009 um and went into small animal practice straight away in a fairly big small animal practice just outside bristol i love bristol and i've never left for anyone mm. else that, that lives there i think you'll know why uh,
0: great, yeah. yeah
2: it's lovely um so yeah so i was in practice for five years um and I adore cats. They're my absolute favourite. They're 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 what I love. Um, and while I was there, I got the cat friendly clinic and and you know helped everyone learn about cat handling and that kind of thing. Um, but after about three years in practice, I got a bit fidgety, which I think is a thing at that time point. And I thought, what what's next? So you know, the the first thing I thought about was going to do a certificate or even a residency. I'd applied for some internships. Um, but nothing really fell into place. And I wasn't sure what I would do after that. So I thought, hang on, what do I enjoy about my job? And I, I liked figuring things out. I liked teaching people at that stage. Um, and I really liked getting into the absolute detail of papers and and that kind of thing. And you can't do that in practice, there isn't time. So that made me think, I think I'd like to try industry I had a few friends who worked in industry at the time albeit non-pharma roles they were working for a food company drug supplement company as vets Um, so I thought let's have a look at that and it soon became clear as I applied for lots of positions that I would need to look a bit different from just coming from practice so I enrolled in the veterinary business management certificate um, to just have something that wasn't purely clinical. Um, And then I was fortunate enough to get a position at Bristol University as the Feline Scholar, um, which is a part research, part clinical um, role sponsored by Zoetis. Um, and I worked there for a year, and I just loved it. I loved being in the academia environment. Um, I loved getting into the depth of things. And then, really, luckily, and just the stars aligned, really, that a role came up in Zoetis in my in Bristol as a as a technical field vet. So I applied and I got it. And so that's where I've been. Here we are. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. And, and and what I love, I think I mentioned before. So you got to work with the amazing Severine Tasker, who literally, who literally fangirl over. She's
2: brilliant. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So (laughs) she's actually now, so she's now the um, clinical supreme at at the group that I work with. So I've had the great sort of pleasure of of, of working with her, but she's just amazing. So that's very cool. So here we are, um, and we've we've come on this journey, and, and here we are talking about parasites today. Now, that's certainly a word, that's words that I never thought would come out of my mouth, let me tell you, let me start by saying, so it's what I love about these conversations is we're, we're speaking about things that I definitely need refreshing on. So I think the, the reason, obviously, we, correct me if I'm wrong, we're, we're kind of having this discussion about parasites and parasite prevention today is because it's such an important part of um, particularly small, uh, small animal practice. Uh, and obviously, the focus of this month is very much talking about um, dermatology and and uh, I suppose all things um, itchy skin. From the point of view of just taking it right back to basics, and, and really, as vets and nurses, when we're uh, having to have that conversation with um, clients about parasite prevention, I do think that sometimes, you know, it's difficult for, for vets and nurses to kind of step into that role of kind of discussing products like this because sometimes they get a wee bit uncomfortable they're starting to feel a wee bit kind of salesy and it all gets a bit oh I must I'm, a set, I'm a, a, you know get a you know just awkward about it for some reason what 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 would you say to kind of empower vets and nurses uh, you know as far as giving the information about the importance of parasite prevention in their patients
2: yeah it's interesting that you mentioned people are a little bit uncomfortable, they think it's a bit of a sell and we hear that a fair bit with the feedback when we're doing training with practices. And I think there's a difference between selling a product um, and effectively recommending a product. So the sales thing is you're just peddling something because you, that's your that's the aim of your job or, or what you want. Um, but you might not believe in the product itself, but you're still selling it. Um, with, with what we call effective recommendations, it's not really another word for selling. But I think if you're confident with the product that it does what it says, that you believe that's the right thing for that pet and for that owner, then it's not a sale it's a it's a clinical recommendation So I think um, being comfortable with the products that you're using, and I appreciate for some people they're just told what they have to use when it comes to parasitics, so that can be a bit more difficult. Um, But if that's the case, educate yourself on the different products that are available and perhaps have a discussion with the person who owns the practice to see whether you can switch products. Um, Because we are so fortunate that there is every combination in every form of parasitic products now um, at the moment, and we are spoilt for choice, really. So figuring out which is the best one, but also using that opportunity in the consult to talk to the owner about um, their lifestyle and the pet's lifestyle, so you can bespoke it a little bit more for them, if possible, because we know that not everything, we don't need to treat everything every month in, in all pets. It, it, it can vary. Um, so th- those would be my thoughts really um on that. What
0: just what do you mean what do you mean a little bit more? So if I came into you um so I I actually had a really terribly sort of humbling if that's <laughs> the word experience with my own cat recently because I the usual vet thing had been quite neglectful about potentially parasite prevention and he started to go outside and he, he was he'd only just started doing this and then we we videoed him one day hunting and thought that was really cute and then mm-hmm. actually I had to then pick the sort of partial bit of tape worn off the back of his fur as it, you know, oh. was stuck to him. <laughs> yeah. You know, Karen, that really ha- that literally really happened. That's hideous, right? So I suppose, yeah, so that it just made me think of that when you said sort of, you know, so what I I so give give us an example of, you know, chatting to people about kind of their individual circumstance. Like give us an example mm-hmm. of why that might be important. You don't have to use my hideous yeah. example. <laughs>
2: so, <laughs> sorry um so yeah a a lot of the time um when we're dealing with the we can be quite reactive when it comes to parasites because the owner Mm. comes in and the dog is bald or the cat is bald and that's clearly a flea issue and then we're it's a reactive conversation so take the opportunity for it to be proactive so let's use cats as as an example because you know i love them so if you have a cat (laughs) that um you have an owner that brings their cat in and you know you're maybe quite bonded to that client you know that they live on their own with the cat fine that was what happened the last time you checked the cat maybe goes into the garden so you know you're putting the flea you're advising year-round flea control because fleas exist all year round um and you've discussed with them about worming but you know you're you're doing it maybe quarterly because the cat's outside um but not too far doesn't hunt that's great but then perhaps that they move in with their partner who's got a dog or other pets, other cats that come in. Now things have changed and they might tell you that because you know you might have behavioural issues with the cat and that'll flag the fact that they've moved in with someone else or they might not. So you need to regularly ask within reason and respectfully how the situation has changed. Another example is um, maybe uh, an older person with a cat um, now has a grandchild that comes to visit them at the house and is at the age now where they're starting to interact with the cat pet the cat and whatever they might tell you that or they might not but then that becomes a cat that needs warmed monthly for toxicara because it's mixing with children so so those are the kind of things that people might all might not volunteer that information So we just need to check in with them probably when we're when we're re-prescribing that product or at the next appropriate opportunity. Obviously, if they come in and the cat's gravely ill, it's not appropriate at that time. But if it's a recheck or a vaccine or even nurse clinics, just check Mm. in um, because lifestyle is always changing.
0: And I think that's a really good point. And we've come across this before when we were chatting to Michael, actually, Karen, about nutrition was that, if you don't ask they're not going to tell you like what you know absolutely and and, and, and this and, and this is like you know and he gave a really good example you know so what do you feed your dog oh, just chicken i mean that's just chicken nothing else yeah yeah just chicken it wasn't you but it's the same sort of thing like how you're not going to understand people are not going to just volunteer information about changes in no. their lifestyle which may affect sort of parasite control so i think that's really important obviously you've mentioned fleas and fleas are a very obvious one because if your pet gets fleas that's really gross and and we want to do something about that but mm-hmm. it's more than that you know there's it's not and it and yeah. and if your pet gets fleas they're probably going to be really itchy and that's also a big concern but is there a wider mm-hmm. discussion there about kind of flea prevention beyond just the obvious gross itchy typical well yeah. i mean that's is that a good summary i think it is so it's yeah. but, but there's a wider discussion to be had there
2: yeah, so obviously the 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 itch and the skin disease that can come from having fleas, um, fleas can spread tapeworm, um, and that's they're the the intermediate host for that. So if you're not under control with fleas, then you are likely to get that tapeworm. Um, but also potentially zoonotic diseases like Bartonella um, is spread by fleas, and actually. You know, a lot of fleas have got Bartonella, um, and that has consequences for people at home, but also for us as veterinary professionals who are coming into contact with fleas and flea dirt every day. Um, and I I remember um, a really great lecture by Mike Lappin, probably about five years ago at BSAVA, and he talked about Bartonella. And when they work in the lab, they use full PPE when they work with Bartonella fleas because it, it can make you really sick. Um. So like some figures, I think one one study showed about 11 percent of cat and dog fleas were positive for Bartonella, which is, you know, over 10 percent. And we're definitely seeing we're seeing fleas a lot in practice. And. You know, it can cause signs like headaches, fatigue, things that are quite non-specific that a GP wouldn't necessarily think I need to test you for Bartonella. So, if anyone out there has got these fake signs, mention to your GP, please. Can you check for Bartonella? But you know, I was responsible pet ownership. Part of that is is helping to reduce the zoonosis that comes from these kind of things. So, flea control helps with that.
0: I think also Barton, from a, from from my point of view as a medic. Um, Vardenal is a funny old thing because we um, there's it's always kind of on a list somewhere as a differential. Sometime it's actually a very hard thing also to test for effectively, and and um you know and so I think it's much better if we just take it off the list and just prevent against it. <laughs> so you know yeah. <laughs> I think that makes the whole thing just much easier. One of the things that I think um, thinking back to when I was kind of first in in first opinion or or primary care practice, I remember the options for all of this stuff being a lot less being limited like i remember you know back in the day i think the options were between you know frontline stronghold and drontal i mean maybe that was just where i worked but i i remember it being very simplified and certainly now there's a lot more stuff out there as far as um what's available and what what's kind of the way that we treat these things particularly also actually whether we do a spot on it or it's oral medication I don't know if you can just just sort of I don't know comment on on kind of that change potentially within the last I don't know 10 years as far as what what's out there and what's available for people
2: yeah yeah certainly thinking back to 10 years ago what we had to manage fleas. Was yeah, like you mentioned, fipronil, imidacloprid. We had selamectin, um, and that those were all spot-ons. And there was only I think one oral option, um, and that was just for fleas. And then as time progressed, we had the appearance of the isoxazoline group um, as a as a new class or a new group of of drugs to address ectoparasites. So not only fleas but also ticks very effectively in an oral option um and and that was the start of sort of the um the tablets for dogs um for flea or or and tick control um and that gave us flexibility because and i'm sure the others will speak to this but if you've got a dog that's atopic or has has recurrent skin disease that might need bathed quite frequently an oral option or a systemic option for flea control for them is what you want because if you're bathing them a lot you're going to decrease the efficacy if it's a topical product um and and just managing dermatology as a whole if we do think about parasites related to dermatology when i qualified in 2009 if you had a demodex case that was quite tricky because we didn't have a lot of management we had the baths and then that went as well for a while I remember there was a stock out of that and we were using oral ivermectin off license which was a bit scary um so you know when you had to, you didn't look for demodex because you didn't want to find it um because you couldn't really effectively treat but now with the isoxazolines we're spoiled we're really spoiled for choice because it's, it's really easy to manage demodex um but I think as as time goes on if we think about all these products that have come out that are all prescription products. Um, it gives the vet more control over what they're prescribing um, and, and what they can recommend. But interestingly, even with the advent of all these products, um, these new really effective safe products, we still see that there is a huge proportion of the market is in uh, non-prescription uh, products. So, if you think about places like online, in the supermarket, in pet shops, owners are still buying their products from there.
0: Uh, can I just ask a really? I wanted to ask a really interesting thing about that. So, I think one of the things that's really changed is obviously the availability of just everything, you know, and the the range of things that you can get from so many different sources, whether that be the corner shop the supermarket online wherever 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 so first of all i think what what, as far as having that conversation with an owner when they just say well i just get this thing from online and it's absolutely fine what kind of what kind of are, are there any hints and tips as far as that conversation you know what how are we bringing people back to the products that we actually know are genuinely effective and maybe bringing them away from scary online platforms yeah, <laughs> or yeah. Whatever.
2: um what i always go back to when we use prescription products is that they're licensed and that means that they have been tested for efficacy and safety and we know that they are both effective so it's going to work when used correctly um, and when applied correctly uh, and they are safe as well as much as we can say that they're safe based on the data from the license Um, I think when when we have breakdowns in in parasite control and when owners come to us and say you know I've bought this product it's not working the compliance is is a real big issue there so if they're using something from, you know, wherever, supermarket, pet shop, wherever, and they don't seem to see a problem, you can dig a little deeper and ask um, how often do you treat um, what, what and go back to the lifestyle. And you probably will uncover some gaps in the in the cover that they've got versus the cover that they need. So go back to those lifestyle questionnaires as well. Um, but certainly with the, break, the with the breakthroughs um, with products appearing not to work, compliance is a massive issue. And some of the um, non-prescription products might not be that easy um, to apply uh, or, you know, they're probably quite large volumes and, you know, all that kind of stuff that, that actually makes it quite difficult.
0: I think there's also a real move in, in people generally, and I feel this in my work as well where they are more, obviously, they, they have the ability to look things up, um, and they are definitely more anti-chemical, you know, and there's this kind of, like, you know, I don't want to be putting all these chemicals on my dog or in my dog or on my cat or whatever, and that's definitely a suede of kind of opinion, and I'd rather just squeeze lemon juice down their back or whatever else people do, random. Um, So, what, again, is there any sort of Is there an easy way to have that conversation with an owner? What do you think Mm -hmm. we should be, what should be our sort of reply to that?
2: you know what that's difficult and this shows why I'm not in practice anymore because when I had people like that <laughs> I tried to talk yeah. to them and they said no we don't see fleas and I said you know what get out then okay fine and I I didn't engage with them Um, and that's probably why I'm not in the consult room anymore <laughs> Um, but do you know what though if they think that putting lemon juice on the dog is working for fleas and the dog mm-hmm. is safe and they don't have fleas I'm all right with that because I'm not going to argue with that when Mm. they get fleas, then we'll have a chat about which product is appropriate because they probably will. But it might be that the dog is not going near anywhere that it's going to pick up fleas. And that's why it hasn't got fleas. It's obviously not because of what they're using. Um, So so with people, there's a spectrum as well of those kind of owners. And I think some of them are not, they're misinformed, but they're obviously they're, they're also quite, um, they don't understand or they don't have the information. So that's why they're a bit worried versus people who who maybe believe misinformation and, and and feel that that's right. So you can take that time to educate the owner and always go back to, and this doesn't matter whether it's a parasiticide product, a non-steroidal uh, uh, anesthetic product, whatever. If it's got a license, then the adverse events are continuously monitored by the vmd and that's when we submit our adverse event forms either as a vet in practice owners can do that and that's independent of the drug companies so if there's anything that looks um, out with the norm or any any sort of trends towards adverse events that are concerning the vmd has the power to either remove the product completely from sale which which has happened and um, change the data sheet so so it's that gives me the confidence as an as a as a cat owner, as a vet, um, and as a as a member of the public that that is being checked, um, and the products that are are licensed are are safe and effective.
0: Exactly. No, exactly. I think that's the key thing. Can you just, and this is maybe more for my benefit than people listening. You again, we're sort of going back to talking about kind of the way products are regulated. So you, we talk about pomv. Did we say pomv? Um versus OTC I think you'll need to explain to me what that means
2: yeah so so POMV um and I I'm not 100% into this knowledge so but I know the top line level so it's I'm sorry if this isn't correct but POMV is a medication that can only be prescribed by a vet um so uh that would be the majority of the products that we use um like uh, vaccines and non-steroidals and, and anesthesia and things like that, then there is the um, non-prescription products um, which have to, be, have to be prescribed by a suitably qualified person um, and that's someone who has taken some further training but that could be a receptionist in the practice who's done some further training to 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 be able to advise on that Um, or it could be someone in a pet shop who's done that qualification as well Um, and then there's there's a there's the lowest level of interaction with someone who who's done training which is a um product that you pick up off the shelf in tesco for example where you don't have to interact with anyone
0: sure and then so that's why we have some products that are still available in um for instance pet shops but they're under lock and key so you have to have some interaction exactly. with someone yeah exactly okay yep. great um as far as um we talked a little bit before about um sort of owner compliance um and i'm you know not just with parasiticides, but also with everything you know compliance is a big challenge i don't know do you have any sort of insight into compliance and 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 potentially the issues that that causes in this kind of particularly in this kind of parasite arena
2: yeah so the compliance data that we have um is is quite interesting out of the twelve. if we think about a monthly application and I appreciate there are some products which are less frequent than monthly but if we even it out so everything looks the same as a monthly application in one year you would expect that 100 percent compliance would be 12 applications in one year but what we know for dogs and cats for flea products in practice is that the average compliance for dogs would be about three applications per year, and for cats it's about two. So that means that in, 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 a, in an average practice, the average dog, which is medicalized, i.e. is coming in for vaccinations and things, so they're already fairly engaged. Um, what practices are seeing is that that dog is only getting three treatments per year out of the 12 that it needs and the cat is only getting two what we also know is that from from sales data of all the products that are available so this is separate to what a practice is selling this is what the UK is 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 buying is that there is a massive proportion of dogs that are apparently covered for fleas so there's a gap between between what the practices are selling and what owners are buying and we know then that the owners must be going elsewhere for their treatments mm-hmm. so they're not coming to the practice as the first go to place um they'll be they'll be buying it over over the counter or um you know in a in a supermarket or whatever so there's there's compliance issues that way but i think for fleas that's one thing but when you start to get to things like especially toxicara in households with children or immunocompromised people two treatments a year is absolutely not enough um and for dogs something like lungworm that's three treatments a year mm-hmm. is is mm-hmm. not enough so it depends obviously mm-hmm. the data varies um you got to look into it a bit deeper but but there is, there are gaps, and then that becomes clinically significant when we don't have lungworm cover, Absolutely. when we don't have tick cover, which might spread Lyme disease and, and so on.
0: And I think yeah, yeah, it's when you start to then list the you know lungworm um but really uh, you know you start to really get this quite comprehensive list of of not ju- it's not just about fleas and itchy skin i mean although that's very important and and, and that is very important but but it, it starts to really build this very strong argument for regular treatment and then it comes down to my question so uh, you know it, <laughs> me as an owner um you know i just want the most straightforward i want you to give me the most straightforward regime ever because that's going to happen probably if you make it simple and how simple can we make it i mean how i presume we can't just give a one product that does absolutely everything because that's not the way the world works but it's how simplified can we make this for people
2: yeah so we know with compliance the less things we ask an owner to do the more likely they are to do them so if we can make as little product application as possible i.e we just need to apply one not three Um, if we can make it easy for the owner to apply so in the case of cats if you've got a low volume if you've got a product that you don't have to wear gloves um, if you've got um, a product that that the cat will tolerate then the owner is more likely to to do that more regularly because it's not a pain to do that um with dogs if the dog will either take the tablet which is probably the easiest thing with dogs i don't own dogs but i feel that it would be easier if a dog could just take a tablet than apply a spot on because of their size usually Um, so so there's the side of um the number of products we're asking them to apply and then there's the other side of the ease of use of that product as well. Um, so uh, tablets that are palatable, um, tablets that you can give with or without food so that the owner doesn't have to wait to give the tablet. They can just do it when they remember.
0: I suppose that the take-home message there is that there's there's not a one-size-fits-all. I think we still need to be having those conversations, don't we, with owners about the lifestyle stuff. So I think, it's a, again, it comes back to ask, asking the right questions because if you don't ask, they won't tell you and then we can come up with the most simplified regime for that uh, for that individual and that i suppose that's ultimately the, the most important thing Um, i hate to talk about covid too much but we'll just mention it here i think um uh you know coronavirus has changed so many things about so many elements of veterinary practice um do you as far as kind of preventative medicines like this um you know we're talking about parasites specifically do you think people's behaviors that have changed during coronavirus do you think that that will affect the effectiveness of what we do from a parasite point of view
2: so i think the the animal's lifestyle probably hasn't changed that much they're still going out for walks if they're dogs the cats are still going outside so they still have the same requirements for parasite protection but owners obviously their buying habits have changed and their um frequency of going into practices has changed um they may not be able to go in at all um, at the moment, um, because, because of the nature of my job, I hear of millions of different ways that practices are handling that. Um, but but certainly we have to accept that people are shopping online much more frequently now um, than they used to. And that, that trend was increasing before COVID, but we've seen it really go um, during COVID. So if they won't come to us for these products, then we need to send it to them. And and that is what we can do. There are are many um, options for subscriptions for parasite products. One of the other benefits of having a subscription, especially one that's delivered monthly to the owner, is it helps compliance because the reminder is the product arriving on the doormat and they can literally just pick it up and do it there and then, so that will really help with compliance. Um, but I think we need to be adaptable as as vets and as practices in a business way, because we've seen things change in terms of the markets of people shopping online more. They're they're you know they shop between six pm and twelve am at night. We're not open then, so how can we get a product to them and still keep that business? but also keep that pet protected. So I think we need to be adaptable. Yes, we want them to come in to see us for footfall. But I think realistically, that's not that's not the way things are at the moment and certainly won't be. Going forward, um, so so offering that option, and and I always say about this, it comes back to options. You will have clients who want that, who want their product to be posted. I'm one of them. I don't want to go to the practice if I don't have to, um, and there will be pr- clients who still want to go in. So you've still got that option for them. But by covering all bases, you just retain that, you know, more yeah. of your client base that way.
0: Absolutely brilliant i hate to i don't want to end with coronavirus because that's very negative because it's It's definitely it's definitely going away so then i wanted to um so we often end by sort of um thinking about kind of take home messages or top tips so i i I think um i'm putting you on the spot a little bit but i think if you're if you were to leave our listeners with a kind of top (laughs) parasite related tip today what would that
2: be that is putting me on the spot a bit isn't it (laughs) um because i'm just thinking that i i would all of what i've said is a top tip isn't it um so i think of course i think don't think parasites are boring because they're not um be curious ask the questions parasite cover in practice can be one of those monotonous things but actually you will make it more interesting for yourself if you ask questions ask the owner about the lifestyle of them about the cat and try and bespoke it a little bit more that'll give you some more clinical satisfaction if anything um and then it will feel less like a sell and more like a recommendation
0: so actually having put you on the spot i think that was very very well said so that's a really nice um a nice way for for us to end so thanks so much. i really um what a joy to chat to you today um it's always amazing i love the fact that you love cats as well that's a bonus um yeah i would i, I would fill my house with bald cats but i'm not allowed Aww. um so uh yeah no i i no, that's really true i really would that's like my dream um uh, to do that one day i really would <laughs> so anyway listen thanks so much for chatting today we really really truly appreciate it thank
2: you thank you
0: a massive thank you to louise and zoetis again for their support of this podcast i hope we haven't left you feeling too uh, itchy uh, i want to say a big thank you to all of you for listening and for your continued support to find uh, find out more about uh, Veronica and about Louise then head over to our show notes and to find out a little bit more about VTX and what we do then head over to our website which is www.vtx-cpd.com